And hard and you aiming for the seven figures Hear from the experts who know how to deliver Success stories, plenty advice Time for you to rise, REI Tribe, yeah Real estate agents to investors All my entrepreneurs, time for you to check this Johan Durack, he's getting the started man From running businesses to digital marketing Hey, REI, REI Tribe REI, REI Tribe, let's go Hey guys, welcome back to this new episode of the REI Tribe podcast. Today I have a very special guest, Alex, that is coming from um, Orlando, Florida. Uh, so, man, first of all, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today. I know that you have a lot of value to share with the audience because you've been in the real estate industry for a while you touch a lot of different topics from you know wall setting fix and flip uh and now you're you're really specialized in the self storage but uh first before we get started can you share with the audience a little bit about you know your beginning how did you get started in real estate yeah so i um was uh in sales i was uh doing a tra- uh, timeshare sales and i heard a radio ad on how to buy houses with no money down so i went to that course bought a course uh, started implementing the course, quit my job, uh, started doing uh, some wholesaling, uh, was missing something in my business, worked for somebody else, got a job working for somebody else for a couple of years, really ran his whole wholesale business, quit that, started doing my own wholesale business. And all through like really like educational masterminds, group coaching, you know, was it really to able to continue to progress and grow my business and, and treat it like a business and continue to add multiple bolt-on businesses to my company. And, um, you know, so we went from whole, like wholesaling, just me and my brother to having a team of like 16 to now having multiple businesses. And now I'm pretty much out of the day-to-day of the wholesale operation where I focus on self-storage and my brother's over there running uh, the day-to-day of the wholesale operation where we do 20 to 30 wholesale deals a month. Wow, that's a pretty big operation. Amazing. So uh, you're saying that you, you studied in the timeshare industry. Uh, do you think like being in the timeshare, because that's that's an industry, that's a niche that we don't really talk about. Do you think it was a huge part of your success starting in timeshare? Because it seemed like it's very competitive. I feel like it's uh, it's really hustle to, to be in this niche. So what do you think being there bring to your, your world set operation? So I, I think the wholesale operation, I think it's all sales and marketing. So it's, mm-hmm. it's all sales and marketing. So with the timeshare, we were doing face-to-face sales. So they would come to us. We would have like a 15-minute, you know, build rapport, make them your friend, build trust, kind of give them a, a preempt of what's going on in the presentation. Then they would go into a presentation room for like an hour, hour and a half where someone else does a presentation. Then they come back to us and we have to close them. And it's like a one-day close. You know, there's no coming back. And essentially, you know, it teaches you a lot on sales. And um you know, going in, I always had like a, a business sense and, and had some kind of thing, you know, with sales, some, you know, experience with sales. But being in this environment was really like what kind of like ignited it in me and being around with other people I've, I've worked with. So one of my business partners now was one of my uh, bosses back then. Oh. And um, he really taught me a lot in sales. Uh, some other other guys, top guys in there, John, Britt, he helped me, you know, uh, be fine tune my sales skills and giving me books and, and continue to educate myself in that sales process. And all I did really was listen to what other people uh, were saying and just kind of regurgitating it into my own words. And I also was using the product and I believed in the product. And so I had a lot more conviction. And so with the wholesale operation, that's kind of what we do. The same thing is, is we have our, how I taught my brother, for the past 10 years was him hearing everything I'm saying, him hearing my pitches, me going through the conversations with these sellers, taking them to appointments. And that's the same thing, how we trained our people up here in our office is just kind of, you know, hearing us on the phones and teaching them by kind of like taking them through our processes. They're shadowing you for a while. They're listening to your calls and uh, a lot of like role play and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How did you felt about this this transition from doing in-person sales because you're saying that people were coming to your office to then transitioning to world selling that is mostly on the phone, you know, like I, I know that it's something that I personally struggle with at the beginning 
you know, being used to do like in-person sales to transitioning to doing nationwide world selling and closing deals on the phone, it, it had an adaptation period, you know, did you experience the same thing? Uh, not so much because I've been doing, doing this for like uh, 12 years. So this on the phone is, uh, is kind of like a newer thing in wholesaling. So back in the day you went to appointments. So mm -hmm. I was driving around from appointment to appointment doing face-to-face -face sales as well. Yeah. So it was very easy transition when I first got into wholesaling because it was all appointments in the seller's home. So it was very easy. I was very used to it and I, I was very successful. I used to tell my brother, I was like, every appointment I go to, I, I'm getting a contract. Like I'm, I'm pre-arranging, you know, that prep call is ahead of time. So I'm pre-arranging, setting up, make sure they are willing to sign if we come to an offer, if all parties who are on the deed are there and, and, and available to sign. And so, you know, every time I, I pretty much went on appointment, I was like shooting like 75, 80% because, you know, we pre-framed the conversation up front that when I go there, if these things are exactly how we line them up to be, then we're going to move forward in, with a today offer essentially okay and so, so you're not losing any time going to appointment that are not qualified you you prefer yeah. everything on the phone and then when you go there you already go for the close for sure and sometimes you know there's things that happen you can never prevent you know they say their husband's going to be there but it's not things mm. like that happen but pretty much the time you got to pre you know preset that up that that appointment up ahead of time to know that you have the success to come home with the contract when you go out there. Makes sense. Are you guys still doing that to this day? Like in Orlando, are you still going to in-person uh, appointment? No, it's rare. We, we might go uh, on, in total in the whole office, maybe like five appointments a year. Yeah. If that. And if they do happen, I actually tend to go because it is in Orlando and I tend to just, you know, pop in myself. So, but I'm pretty much out of the day to day of the wholesale, but the call going to the calls actually was different. Going from face-to-face -to, -face to calls was definitely different. It's a different, vibe because you can't get that um that body language feel you can't really tell how they're feeling about some things you say so um but i think that you have different kind of advantages being over the phone rather than face to face um you know when you're at the property and you're saying hey this is the price i need and you look at the property and then your buyer ends up telling you they need a lower price then it's yeah. like it's hard to justify it's like hey you saw the house you saw everything when you're over the phone and you're pitching and you're just going off of what the seller tells you and then the buyer goes sees it later and says, hey, I need a lower price, you can get feedback from your buyer saying, hey, you didn't tell me about this, 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 and this on the property. So it gives you more of an ability to get a reduction in the future if you need one to make the deal happen. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think there is like pros and cons on, on both models. But uh, for me, what I noticed is that, you know, sometimes it would take me one hour to go drive to like West Palm Beach or something to meet a seller. And then you go there, someone has been faster and locked up the deal already, or it's not what you thought it would be. Uh, and so you're just losing your time. So uh, exactly. having this ability to close on the phone is, uh, is really uh, beneficial on that point. Now, I would say on the cons, it's because you know, sellers lies, so obviously, like you have a cancellation rate on your contract that is going to be uh, much higher than yep. when you actually see the properties. But, but yeah, and I, I think this trend of, you know, statewide wall setting or nationwide wall setting kind of push everybody to close on the phone now, because obviously if you're in Orlando and you do deal in Jacksonville, you're not going to be able to drive there to see every deal. So by the way, what, what does your wall sale business looks like today? Are you guys still doing only Orlando or are you like, statewide now uh we're definitely we're more than statewide so uh last year before everything happened with the market we were nationwide and so we did deals all over the country we have a call center in south america and so it had give us the ability to scale quickly and so uh we were nationwide wholesaling but we pulled back to where we had the best buyers because of the market because right now the only deals that are getting done are with the buyers who are buying in today's market. So there's mm -hmm. a lot less buyers out there. So you have to really know and have good buyer relationships. So the buyers where we have the best are in Florida, North Carolina. Um, we have some other little areas here and there, but we're mostly uh, targeting the Southeast. And so ideally for us, Orlando, Tampa, those deals fly the quickest, but yeah. we get deals all over Florida and North Carolina. We do very well. Yeah, and I guess because you've been here for so long, like you nurtured those relationships and 
You know, that's, that's interesting because I've been saying that for the last two years, like when the market shift, we're going to see, we'll really spend time building those relationships with our buyers. Yeah. Because for the last two years, it was, it was an easy game. Like some, the people that got started in world selling in the last two years, I mean, even if you locked up the contract a little bit too high, you would do an email blast and some people would just raise their hand. Right now, if you don't have any relationship with your buyers, it's going to be very, very complicated. Yeah, for sure. We we didn't even really go for the, like the hedge funds. So like all these people were selling the hedge funds. We sold the hedge funds, but mm-hmm. like if a if a real buyer came in and said, "Hey, I'm ready to move right now," even though the hedge fund could pay a little bit more, but they wanted this 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 done and do inspections and all that, we would go with our 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 real buyer. And we, I would always felt that way, and so I would just go with the the, the fastest one. And so even though we might not make the most money, it was the the burden hand essentially. And so being able to do that through those times like we sold way more deals to regular buyers and hedge funds and that was the opposite for most people that when all this happened with uh, you know the yeah. credit crunch and whatnot that um you know our buyers are still buying from us and they move fast yeah i, I mean uh, this world trend of selling to hedge fund has always been like uh, i mean there was an opportunity and it was right to seize it at the right time but it, it was always a temporary trend because i think the hedge funds are going to structure themselves to the point that they don't really need to rely on wholesalers anymore. And so when you have this kind of market shift, obviously having like private investor buying your deal is always going to be uh, the safest bet. Now, let me ask you this. When you were like focusing on wholesaling, were you also like picking fix and flip and building a, a portfolio of single family rentals at the same time? Or was it purely wholesale? Yeah, so I was wholesaling for a long time and not keeping anything. Uh, and that was a, a major mistake, uh, especially for prices that are are the way they are to now compared to 10, eight years ago. But um, I eventually in 2017 is when I started buying and taking down my uh, my own assets. And so it was mostly through creative financing that I was buying those properties. So was really mastered creative financing, learned it for a, a lot, uh, a lot of time studied it and then started implementing it and taking it down for myself. So I, the moments I started doing some, making a lot more offers that way, I started buying some assets for myself to keep. And then during that same time period, I was also buying properties and raising private money to do rehabs. And the combination of those two things, private money and creative financing can really allow you to uh, quickly grow a portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a, uh... It's always strange that people want to be fit in a box in this industry, you know, oh, I'm a wall seller, I'm a flipper. Because at the end of the day, it just exit strategy. You should be able to like market, find a property, and then decide if you want to keep it, take it down, do a wall tail, a flip, all yeah. it as a rental. Uh, so it's definitely a small strategy. And, you know, I'm having a lot of those conversations on, uh, on the podcast and it's, uh, it's always the same thing. Everybody is always like, Oh, look back like 10 years ago. If only I had all on, onto more properties because we, we all like looked for the, the quick box. I mean, I came to this country eight years ago and I, I was doing flips here in South Florida. I'm looking at the condominiums that I flipped here between Fort Lauderdale and West Palm. They, they quadruple in value and I was happy to make 10K back then. So, uh, it's definitely like, um, a learning lesson and it takes time to, to get to this point. Uh, but I agree with you. Creative financing is great. I think most people should get interested into it for some reason, like still like trying to fight and respond of like cash buyers. And I, I think it's the smartest way to take down deals, especially right now with those high interest rate. Like when you can go and recapture those. 3% loan that were made uh, two years ago or, or negotiate some terms and Sarah finance. It's uh, it's really the best way. Yeah. And it, and it works not only for a single family, but like a uh, multifamily or commercial self storage. So we, for bought sure. our, yeah, so we bought our biggest self storage facility, five and a half million dollars with 3% interest, uh, 85% leverage, 3% interest, uh, amortized for 30 years, incredible terms that you would never get, you know, from a bank, especially now. Yeah. And so like those, it makes good deals, amazing deals, and it and allows you to get into some deals that that wouldn't pencil out if you had to go the traditional route of you know getting bank financing, especially with today's rates. No, for sure. So, uh, having negotiated both residential and commercial, would you say that 
I feel like the sellers are a little bit more sophisticated, obviously, on the commercial side. So do you think this speech about creative financing, it's easier on commercial than it would be on residential? For sure. I think a lot of um, I think a lot of sellers with commercial are more aware of uh, seller financing. Yeah. They might have even bought their property with seller financing in the past or bought properties in the past. I think the uh, thing with commercial is it takes a lot more time, you know, um, I think the pain for sellers, especially in self-storage, is is there's not as much pain. It's very recession-resistant business. And so a lot has to go wrong, either in that seller's life or with the property, for that property to be in, in pain. And so, you know, it's more of a building relationships and just getting the seller, matching what the seller wants with uh, your offer. So, Okay. Uh, and so the facilities that you bought so far, uh, what was like the avatar of seller? Is it someone that wants to go to retirement so they don't want to self-manage this anymore? Or is it just like some kind of distress like we would know in, in residential? Yeah, it's it's mostly the ones I have have purchased have been mostly retirement. Like okay. they're retiring. A lot of the folks have uh, been working at the property. Like mm. literally, they're meeting the customers. They're... You know, they don't have a manager in place. They're operating the property and it's like their day to day in their life. And so a lot of these folks are like, hey, man, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm really trying to, you know, go on vacation now and enjoy life. Or, you know, I built up time. I built up this business and now it's my time to go. And so a lot of the properties we bought have been 90 percent occupied, you know, very full. But their rates are below and they're they also have low expenses because they're doing yeah. everything. So there's like a mirror of like, Hey, we we're going to actually have an increase in expenses and the increase of taxes, insurance, but our value, our rents are also going to double because their rents are so low. That's so sure. there's a little bit of a mix. So you got to see where the ad value is and where it makes sense. But essentially uh, the majority of those folks have been uh, retirees. And I have some buddies of mine who bought some properties from like divorce situation mm -hmm. and then done really, really well. We're actually buying one property right now. We're under contract in uh, that's the sellers in a divorce and he has to sell it, you know, because. Okay. All right. Makes sense. So it's mostly mom and pop's operation. If I understand correctly, because they've been working in it for so long. They're probably like not up to date on like the latest technology or to automate everything. So you come with your structure and your processes and basically you're, you're going after this upside. Like you're looking to perfect the operation, lower the operating expenses and increase um, the income rate. Correct. Yeah. And just like most people, like when you buy houses from folks and they're like, oh, I had this tenant for like 10 years and they never want to raise the rent. You know, they, they're a 10 years ago rent. Well, if, with same thing with storage, like they have their full, if they have no debt, very little debt, they're happy. You know, they're not, they're not trying to force people. They've made relationships with these people for 10 years. So they really don't want to raise their rents. And so essentially they're not pushing the income where it needs to be. So with us, we use automation for finding new tenants, new clients to get in there easily to book a facility, to book units. We utilize, you know, Google PPC marketing to bring in uh, new clients. And a lot of these folks don't even have websites. And so, you know, and then also we eliminate like having a full-time employee with all those systems and automations and technologies. We don't need a full-time employee. And a lot of the properties we have purchased have had, you know, the seller has been sitting there at the, at the property nine to five for five days a week. And they're 98% full. It's like, there's not even a need for you to come in here. Yeah. They don't so, own a business. They own a job. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, they don't have the, the realization of what can be done. So uh, we definitely want to stay on top of line with uh, the technology and automations. And I just had a conversation just earlier to go uh, this morning about with somebody else who's developing a new software for people with self-storage. So there's a lot of things you got to stay up to date on and a lot of uh, technology you can use to help you manage these properties more efficiently. Oh, for sure. I uh, I actually just ran for the first time a storage like uh, a month ago and I never used that before. And I was like, oh, I need some extra space to, you know, get rid of stuff. I did it on the app. It took me five minutes. Five minutes later, I had like a notification. Okay, your storage is ready. The lock is there. You go there, this unit, you pick it up. The lock was waiting for me. Like everything was done online. It took me literally five minutes. That's That's amazing. That's exactly what we do. And you don't have to see anybody. You don't have to talk to anybody. You get the gate code there. You go right in. 
and it's and it's that simple. So it's uh it's a very uh better way to do things. All right. So do you have any any interesting story about self storage? Because I I've seen I heard some crazy stuff. I heard like people telling me, oh, I have someone that moved in the storage unit, and then like to evict those people, it's a nightmare because now like they're kind of considered like a tenant. Like I heard yeah. some some insane story about uh, about self storage. We bought we've we've purchased uh, three or four that had people living in them. Uh, one, the one that was kind of like the worst situation, uh, was, uh, this property in Tampa. It was literally almost like a, a nightclub on like <laughs> Friday nights. It was literally like, there's people hanging out there and it was, uh, it was wild. There's prostitutes, there wow. were old people living in there, in the homes in the, in the units uh, as their home. Um, and, uh, it was a big turnaround. It was our, it was our biggest turnaround at that property. And then we bought some other ones as well. Uh, we had a, a clip go viral on 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 Instagram because a lady was living in the facility. It was a little small one. It was literally like a like a four by eight, a closet, and uh, she was like threatening to shoot us with like a pellet gun. It's just crazy. Like uh, so, people, obviously oh, people have to stay there. You know, yeah. they're tough times, but they can't stay there because it's a liability. It's literally a metal. It's box. a huge liability. Yeah, I'm just wondering how does it work because. Do you have the same like landlord tenant relationship that you would have in a residential? Because I know that sometimes, you know, in some states, uh, even a squatter that would move into your house is kind of considered like a tenant. Like they have the same protection law. You need to go through an eviction and everything. So is it the same for self storage? So in both, in all the situations, we always just call the cops yeah. and see what they said. And so the cops in the Tampa one were able to like push these people out. No okay. problem. And the one in Winter Haven that we had, apparently the seller knew that she was staying there and was like letting her stay there. Mm. So uh, as the seller was talking to the cop, they were saying that, you know, since you let her stay there, it's like kind of you allowed it to be. So we had to go through a formal eviction with that one. Okay. That's uh, that's insane. Yeah, and so was, do you have a lot of those things like, you know, like we see on TV, like those bidding wars, like people leaving their stuff and then you need to kind of like do some auctions or. Yeah. So it's different than the TV. Uh, essentially what we do now, there's a lot of services online that take care of everything. And essentially our manager with our boots on the ground, after they give all the proper notices, they essentially cut the lock, uh, take a picture of the items inside post, uh, give it to the online service. The online service does all the newspaper you know, um, requirements and then, uh, schedules an online auction. So they just post pictures online, people bid online and then whoever wins the bid comes out to the property and they have like 24 hours to remove all the items. And essentially, um, that's it. So I, I've never even been to one. I, we haven't even really done that many. We've owned nine properties and I, I feel like we've maybe done five. Yeah, it's a it's like residential like auction. Uh, everything is like on auction dot com or those yeah, website. Exactly. I, I miss this time where we would just go to the courthouse and there was a fight every time. That was fun. <laughs> Less competition now. Yeah. It's world class competition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, you're saying that you don't need now to have like one employee in every facility because basically with technology and everything you can kind of like have your manager control several um, uh, facilities. Does that mean you're able to like really buy facilities anywhere in the country or are you still like staying in Florida? No, we're, we're buying, uh, we're marketing throughout the country. So we always need a boots on the ground. So like a, a manager boots on the ground, somebody on the on site who's going to be looking at the property and in, in different properties, depending on the size, you might have them go every day or every other day or whatever it may be, or a couple hours a day. And essentially, they're the ones who make sure the property is clean, the property is safe, it's locked up. They look for properties that come empty, you know, because not everybody notifies you that they moved out. And so mm -hmm. they're looking for, you know, empty units, things that don't, are missing locks, uh, making sure the properties safe, clean, the lights are on, the lights are working, there's no damage to the property, and they're just constantly checking on the property. Um, and then they help out here and there when people need it. Not everybody is uh, internet savvy, so that someone might need help getting to their unit or, or you know meeting at their property for whatever reason. And so they just handle kind of the day-to-day -day on that side. But relatively, the hard part about storage in the beginning is just like the take the initial takeover. 
getting everybody used to the new systems and new processes. And then after that, it's pretty easily maintained. Okay. Do you have a do you have a lot of like maintenance cost on those facilities? Because I I just see like the one where I took a storage. It's a brand new facility, but you can all already see that you know those aluminum panels that they use. It's not very thick, like it's kind of light, and you see that people bump it with the cart and everything. So it's already all bumped all over the place. And yeah. I was wondering, like, do you have a lot of maintenance costs? Do you need to replace them very often, or? Yeah, so the only ones that are kind of like a big maintenance calls that we get is, you know, when we're buying these properties that already exist, that some of the doors might not be, you know, able to open or it's stuck. So they either have to like, you know, grease the springs mm. or spray the springs, replace the springs, replace the doors. So things like that come up. But that's not, uh, you know, we try to take care of a lot of that stuff up front as we do the takeover to see and know during our due diligence, you know, we're looking at these properties, we're rolling doors that are open or get an idea of like kind of what uh, repairs are needed. And every time a unit comes empty, if we know, hey, this is an older facility, we're going to have to, you know, do some kind of treatment to those springs to make sure they can be maintained or look to see if it needs to be replaced right away before a new tenant goes in. So it's more kind of like ongoing, um, you know, taking care of the deferred maintenance on properties rather than ongoing maintenance issues. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. And yeah, I, I assume it's probably like, uh, I mean, I heard people investing in cell storage for a few years now. I think that and like mobile home parks were kind of like the trend because I, when everybody was expecting a recession to come, you know, uh, it was like when you go into either like low income housing, which with mobile home, you don't have any like lower income housing than that. And then exactly. self storage for commercial. That's usually the more like recession, like resistant investment you could make because I don't know how much you charge, but I assume like if I look at the rate anywhere between 50 to 90 bucks a month for something, people even forget that they're paying that. Like it goes probably on a credit card. They're getting yeah. billed every month. Uh, it's, it's something that is very, uh, recession resistant. So yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a very sticky business, sticky, uh, sticky. You get sticky customers because of that fact with the credit cards on file, you know, you raise it 10 bucks, you know, here, there, every other couple months. It's it's just kind of forgotten, and the pain of removing your items is is high. So it's mm. like, man, it went from ninety to one hundred and ten. Now I gotta, am I really gonna go move all this stuff? Okay, where am I yeah. gonna that stuff? Or if I'm gonna rent the truck, move, yeah. like take a day off? Yeah, so uh, it I takes, can see. takes that time. But if um, you know, I like also mobile home parks. I own some mobile home parks as well. Mm -hmm. I think Home parks have a great have the most cash flow, I feel, and then self storage is kind of just the easiest to manage and maintain. And yeah. like you said, it's recession resistant. Where if things are bad, you might have to move out of your house and move in with your mom or your sister or yeah. whatnot. You're going to take all your stuff that you can't bring into their house and put it somewhere because you don't want to get rid of your stuff. You want to keep your stuff, but you're in a bad situation. So you can pay the hundred bucks, hundred fifty bucks a month to keep your stuff there until you can save up more money and get your own house or the market changes or whatever. So in both a good economy or a bad economy, storage is, is a good business. Of course. So uh, how did you actually ended up in uh, in storage? Because usually, you know, when I talk to people in a residential, they're like, oh, we start with wall setting and everything. We start, you know, building up a portfolio of single family houses. And then we realize at some point it's hard to scale because when you have a portfolio like, you know, scatter apart, property management, everything, it's it's very hard to go to like 100 different doors. Now, usually people transition from that to multifamily because it's like the logical step. It's stay in a residential, but then you have a scale that you couldn't get otherwise. Uh, but I find that very interesting that you went into, into self-storage. So... Can you tell me a bit more about how you discover this uh, this uh, specific niche? Yeah, so like I I always educated myself, so I've always been going to like seminars and events and boot camps and stuff like that. And so I've learned of self storage, of multifamily, of uh, mobile home parks, and I own some multifamily. I own some mobile uh, mobile home parks as well, and self storage I was aware of, but just didn't wasn't active in it yet at that point. And I liked self-storage and mobile home parks the best. And I had a partner with mobile home parks where I just felt like he had that dialed in 
And, you know, I, we say, my, my partner and I say, you know, partnerships equal rocket ships. So if I was to come across a mobile home park, I'd essentially just give it to him and be like, hey, let's partner. You know, I'll let you run it. Let's run this together. I'll do my part, raise capital, um, put the deal together, structure the deal, analyze it. But then, like, I'll let you run it because he's got that down. And so it didn't really make sense for me to, like, go into that. I have him as a partner. So if I came across the deals, I just partnered with him. But I knew nobody who was doing self-storage. So it just made sense that, like, hey, let's do self-storage. I love, I like that asset class. It's still, you know, kind of at that point in time, 2020, only a couple of years ago, it was, like, less known. And there's still a lot of opportunity there. And so, you know, we decided to go into into that full full force and kind of really focus in on that. And right from our first mail campaign, you know, we got a deal. And so I just made it, you know, uh, gave us great uh, momentum to continue to go after that. And the next year we got five deals and just continue to grow from there. So uh, I really like the asset class. I dove all in to learn everything about it. And really, you know, that's my main focus. Okay. So uh, are you still like kind of trying to diversify in different asset class or no? Are you like fully focused on the self storage and that's, that's your niche and that's where you want to go? Yeah. We're, we're fully focused on self-storage. Like we still buy uh, several houses uh, a month from our uh, wholesale operation, but we're only buying deals that are in Florida that are creative finance deals. So that's all we're buying. But I don't really have to essentially have to handle that. My team knows how to handle that. They run it. We have a project manager, a property manager, everybody who handles the data that, of that, that operation. And so it's a lot easier to scale that. Now, not to say that if a great mobile home deal like kind of fell on our lap from our typical marketing or from a network or a resource that I wouldn't look at it. I definitely will look at those opportunities and deals because I have the experience and then I have the people I can even partner with if I need to. And so I'm, I'm always open to opportunity, but I'm not targeting those opportunities myself. I'm literally only marketing for self-storage and then from our wholesale operation, we'll see houses um, and continue to buy houses. I find that very smart, like this, this vision that you have of, oh, I might not be the best operator from mobile home park because that's not, that's not what I'm doing. So I will just partner up with someone that is already doing that. I've been doing most of my career in a residential and single family. I bought a few apartment buildings a few years ago and it was a nightmare to manage just yeah. because my company was structured to handle single family. We were very good at it. As soon as we started to onboard apartment building, it was supposed to be amazing to like scale and everything but it was actually a nightmare to manage and so i realized at some point that i still believe in multifamily i still think it's a great way to scale but i would rather just partner up with someone that is used to you know run syndication and that is a very great operator in that niche and i think i would rather do that in every niche that i want to diversify in rather than you know, having to do it myself. So yeah, I can really see the vision on that. And I think it's a very, it's a very smart way to, you know, it's a, what is this saying? Who not how? I think that's exactly what it is. It's yeah. who not how. Who, who not how, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so essentially I have um, like 15 short-term rentals. I don't know. I don't do a thing with short-term rentals. Like I have partners who all they do is short-term rentals. That's their whole thing. They don't do anything else. They just do short-term rentals. So I just partner with them. Some I own with them. Some I own myself and they just manage. And so it just makes more sense. Like you can focus on what you're good at, what what your um, skill set is and let them focus on their skill set. And that's the, it will help you go farther. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, on the sales storage side, we, we talk a little bit about marketing. I think you... You told us earlier that you own a call center in uh, in Latin America. Uh, I think I heard you talking about matters as well. Uh, how do you get those deals? Like first, let's talk about the self storage, and then we'll switch to to the wholesale company. But how do you get deals in self storage? So self storage, majority of our our deals have come from direct marketing. Uh, we get a lot of leads from cold calling, and we have a couple under contract now from cold calling. But um, self uh, majority of the ones we've purchase have been from direct mail. I got one from a referral and social media, but direct mail has been the, the number one for us so far. Okay. So is it a similar process than for, for wall selling on houses? Like, do you just pull a list out of prop streams, keep trace it and, and then yep. either like, uh, 
have someone cold coding it or send errors? Same process? Essentially, yep. And so for us, we've been trying to get better and better data and self-storage is a little bit more a little tougher to get data. So we use like InfoUSA, exact mm -hmm. data. We bought them from different uh, sources and just tested the data, looked at the data and you know see what works best. Um, we use Yardi Matrix, which is a, like a high-end, uh, expensive uh, service, but it has really good data. And so we've utilized that. And we just constantly are investing in more, you know, more embedded data and just reaching out to them through direct mail and, and cold calling. How does that work for cold calling? Because, you know, in residential, everybody is used to using basically the same kind of framework. They all have different scripts, but it's very basic. Hey, uh, you and this house at this address, would you be interested in setting it? Yes, no, few questions of qualification. And yeah. basically, you push that to a lead manager or a closer. How does that work for self-storage? Because I assume, once again, the seller might be a little bit more sophisticated. They might be might not be as receptive as a call call than than in a residential. So, did you train your call caller to have like a very specific framework dedicated to self storage? Yeah, we definitely have uh, kind of have it. It's simply it is still asking. You know, are you interested in selling? But it's definitely trying to be more interested in a, about them, about their business, how long they've been doing business, kind of building rapport, even on the cold caller side, and. Um, just getting some of the basic info. And if they're interested in selling or they have a why of why they might want to sell or have a price in mind, then it passes on to my acquisition team. And it's the same. I use my same acquisition team that we use for wholesaling. So they'll take a call. They'll know it's for, for uh, a self-storage lead. And then essentially it's their job to get more information from the seller, get more information about the property, and then also get financials. And once they get the financials, then it comes to me. And then that way we can really uh, get an idea of the property and make an offer. Because if they're not really able or willing to provide financials, there's nothing really there for us until we get those, those numbers. Now, there's times where some old mom and pops might not have proper financials, but if they're giving you their numbers, um, we'll base offers off their numbers. But most times, um, you know, if you can't get financials from a seller, it's somebody who's not really motivated to sell. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. But yeah, I assume on the cold calling side, you need to have someone that is very sharp on the phone to to collect those information. Okay. You can't like just give the lease to a yeah. VA out of Upwork or something like that. It would not work. So out of our call center, um, we have like one person who calls for self storage because also the list is not that big either. Mm -hmm. So we don't. We don't cold call for anybody else. We only cold call for wholesale for residential because the lists are, are much bigger. You could call a lot more people. There's just a lot more homes than self-storage facilities. So we have one caller for us and she's just really good. She has a great English speaking, you know, English um, accent. She doesn't have like really that hard yeah. of an accent. She's very smart. And so she just does very well and she gets a lot of leads uh, for us. Okay. And signs the, the, the data, as you say, the list is probably much smaller. I assume you probably almost already pulled the entire country. Uh, yeah. You're probably putting them on like some sort of conveyor belt of marketing. I assume like if you don't get them on the call calling, then it goes to matter and like you, you keep reworking this, this list over and over again. Yep. Yep. We were calling Florida and then she burned that kind of list a lot. Then we went to the Southeast and that's why we're nationwide calling uh, yeah. everywhere in, um, the country for self storage because the list is so small and she needed more and more to do. So now uh, we actually just turned it back on, but for like a month or six weeks, like we didn't call anybody and we just let the data rest because she was just burning through it so fast. And so now she's back at it again and we're kind of re-engaging with these sellers and getting more, uh, more and more leads. Okay. Have you tried any inbound for that? Like, PPC, Facebook, all of that, or not, is it too not niche? PPC. Not PPC. Uh, we've only done direct mail, so okay. it's essentially it's inbound because they're reaching out to you afterwards. And those again are are the best leads because there's more of a motivation. You know, they typically there's people who will say, "Hey, give me a price." You know, always, but majority, you know, more often than not, you'll get somebody who has some interest in selling or or some kind of why. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so. Um, is there any states where you wouldn't buy a facility? Is it like residential where you're like, you know, I don't want to go in California or in New York State or Illinois maybe? I don't know. Uh, is it the same for storage or or you don't really care? 
Um, for me right now, I haven't uh, seen any states like that because the wall, the tenant walls are definitely uh, not the same yeah. as like houses for for storage. Um, essentially, you know, Florida's a um, one of the best markets uh, for demand and prices, uh, but also we have like the highest taxes and highest insurance. And so you know, right now, with insurance rates rising, it's tough to make some of these deals pencil out. But uh, our deals are still doing very well because the valuations are, are really high too. So it just depends. Different markets are kind of like, you know, you'll get more, you know, appreciation or like a lower cap rate than the cash flow. So it's kind of like a little bit similar like that with like single family. You know, uh, you're not buying, you know, houses in San Diego for the cash flow. You're buying it for the future appreciation. But yeah. it's all about finding a good deal. I know a buddy of mine who bought a, a, a property in California and for self-storage and he just bought it at a good price and it was a distressed asset and he turned it around and it's making great money on it. So it just depends on finding that good deal and, um, you know, maximizing the value. Yeah. I think it's, it's the same thing everywhere, you know, in the, in the Southeast in general, we're, we're betting on two things, which is appreciation, obviously. And then you get the depreciation on the, on the asset as well. So if you have a wholesale business or any kind of active yeah. income, like fix and flip all of that, it's great to be able to buy those assets. Uh, but I feel like for cash flow, it's probably more like in the Midwest or in those areas where the cost of acquisition is much lower. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And they're getting a lot less on the price per square foot. So some of these places, you know, we're looking at them and they're like, oh, well, I have two other acres and I can build. Mm, but it's yeah. like, but your prices are like a dollar you know, a dollar a square foot, 80 cents a square foot, it doesn't make sense to build yeah. because your prices are so low and that's just that market. That's how it is. So, um, you know, there's a lot to look at in different, um, in different areas when you're analyzing properties in this different areas. So it's all, you know, just trying to get the best deal you can and, and creative financing, seller financing allows us to, to maximize our cash on cash returns. For sure. Do you, do you see a lot of, you know, it's coming like in the office, uh, office building and commercial in general, a lot of, um, you know, balloon payments coming. And so we hear a lot of noise about, you know, there yeah. might be a wave of like foreclosure because they're not going to be able to refi uh, when the balloons come up. Do you see a lot of that happening in self-storage as well? Or do you feel not really because it's more like mom and pops with, uh, with a lot of equity? Um, I think um, there's potential for ones that were, uh, under development in mm. in the lease up stage, and now maybe their their loans are you know coming coming due, and they projected that they were gonna exit at a you know four cap, and yeah. now it might be five and a half, you know, and so that can that can hurt them. Um, I think I've seen some people trying to sell you know at CO at certificate of occupancy or with very low occupancy right now, and and just trying to be ahead of that. Uh, situation and so i think there's there's definitely opportunities out there and it's just finding the right sellers and and being in front of a lot of people so there, i think it's definitely going to be there i think more so in multifamily than anywhere else yeah but you know you gotta you gotta find that you gotta source source those good deals oh yeah i think there's going to be a lot of people underwater because it's been kind of crazy in the last two years especially yeah. in multifamily like i've seen people buying at such low cap rate that it wouldn't make any sense today. So yeah, I think a lot of loans are, are going to be underwater. I'm just I'm just looking to see, you know, all the lenders are going to to handle that because you already have two ways to go. It's either they're going to force basically the properties under foreclosure, but the lenders don't really want to get their asset back and those asset back on their end. So we might do a lot of loan modification. That's that's the only component that we don't we don't really know. Could could go one way or another. Yeah, a lot of times, uh, one of my buddies he buys like toxic assets directly from the bank. So before they even like kind of get to that point, yeah, a lot of those times those banks can just sell off those assets for, I wouldn't say pennies on the dollars, but you know seventy eighty percent you know cents on the dollar, and then give opportunities to these other people before it actually hits their you know their toxic asset you know books. And so there, uh, there, there's definitely going to be opportunities. You've got to be able to, you know, uh, be aware of them. I think the people who are really going to get hurt are the people who bought in areas that were not ever four or five cap areas. Mm. And because the market was the way it was, 
they're like, oh yeah, everything's trading at a you know four or five cap, and it's like, yeah. you know, outside of Oklahoma City, never was going to be a four or five cap, and like they're trying to, they were buying properties and expecting those kind of prices as if it was you know California, Florida, Miami, things like that. So I think those areas are going to ones that are going to get hurt because you won't ever be able to sell those for those types of numbers. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, it's something I experienced first, and you know, I, I did most of my career in the Midwest, in uh, Detroit, and and in Cleveland. And I have some asset that I exited at five, six cap, where really I bought them at a ten cap, and ten years from now they're going to be worth a ten cap. They're never going to be worth anywhere near the six cap. Uh, yeah. But it was crazy. It was crazy for two years. Um, there was a lot of liquidity out there. People were looking for ways to you know, invest this money. So, uh, yeah, the market has been, has been a little bit intense. Uh, do you see, um, in self storage in general, I mean, a few years ago, like it was a very, like, kind of like obscure niche, like no one was really looking into it. I feel like now it's becoming very trendy and very popular. So uh, have you seen like a lot of people coming to this niche? Have you seen like a difference between the first self storage facility that you negotiated a few years ago and now like, do you see more competition? Uh, I, I 100% do. Like I, I, I don't know if I ever knew of anyone who was wholesaling self storage, and now there's all kinds of people wholesaling self storage, and wow. so it, it's a lot. I think there's a lot of people, more people talking about it. I talked about it a lot. Uh, I had some people mad at me in my mastermind for talking about it so much, so I could tell everybody everything. Um, so I think it's just more well known, and then a lot of the big companies um are you know um buying each other you know black Lock, you know i think just sold uh to public storage and so there's a lot just more news coverage on it and with social media like everything else right now it's just uh puts more of a, a view on it and so it's just a lot more known than definitely a couple of years ago okay so let's get a little bit technical on the on the world financing i know that you're uh you're an expert in the creative financing aspect of real estate and so you told us that you are also buying those self-storage and creative financing. Oh, um, is it mostly self-financing or do you also do some kind of sub-two kind of deal? And if you do the sub-two, is it the same system as a residential where you transfer the title, but the mortgage stay attached to the seller? Or do you have to kind of like assume the loan, meaning do an application with the lender? Yeah, so... um the the majority of the ones I've done so far have been with the owner owned it free and clear, and we're getting a uh, seller finance note. Now you can uh, assume there's a lot more commercial loans that are assumable, and SBA is assumable. We're working on one with an SBA that's assumable loan, and then um, we have the one thing to look out for on being able to do the like subject to for commercial is that like for my commercial loans every year I have to provide uh, updated personal financial statements, updated financials on the property and how it's doing to the bank. Now, if, if that's going on with your seller, you're taking the property over with, you have to make sure that, Hey, I'm going to need your financials every single year to provide to the bank. Yeah. Now, okay. They can t contact me instead of you now, but I'm, they're going to want your financials because you're on this, property so there's a couple different ways you can make it work you can make them as like uh maintain him as part owner of your new llc so the llc you buy it in he stays as an owner and you know might not have any profit share capabilities or you know he could be a one percent owner ten percent owner like whatever you can negotiate to make it make sense and so it is possible to do it that way and kind of do like a you know, take over somebody's mortgage, 100% it can be done. There's just different ways and techniques to do it. It's definitely different than, you know, taking over a, a homeowner's house uh, house mortgage. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, I feel like it's, uh, in commercial, it, uh, it's, it's a little bit more complicated because the lenders are slightly different than in residential. We have on sub two in, in residential, it's kind of this gray area. Yeah, you can take over the mortgage. Yes, title is going to be transferred. But the due on sale clause is is there, but it's kind of like it doesn't happen very often. Like I think in my career I, I heard of like two times it happened or something like that. So it's it's very it's very rare. But on commercial I feel like the lenders have 
kind of like more like a closed look on the asset. And so uh, yeah, the, you need to be a little bit more careful there. Yeah. And with the commercial side, it's more kind of a relationship based also. So like the, the lender probably knows the, the borrower a lot better. Um, but there is also like um, I, I purchased a property from somebody who bought it subject to okay. and they bought the commercial loan. But the commercial loans most times are often are ballooned out every five years anyway. Mm. So you have to know what period of time you have left before that balloon ends anyway. Yeah. And you're able to get in quick enough because you might only need it for the entry because especially with self-storage, you can do your add value very quickly. So if you can allow yourself to do it quickly and say, okay, well, I only need this to get into it for a year. There's so much add value I can do within the next six months to a year. Then I can refinance or sell it or do whatever I need to do on the backside. Then there's a lot of opportunity to do that. And so, um, you know, it might be different, different asset classes, but for self-storage, relatively quickly, you can do a lot of the add value. Yeah, and that's probably where uh, that's probably where the playbook is. Like you create the value, then you refi, you take out your equity, which is basically tax-free money, and then yep. you put some long-term financing on it, and uh, and you refi every every five to ten years or something like that. Yep, exactly, one hundred percent. All right, makes sense. Okay, so we have we have about like ten minutes left. Uh, let's okay. just touch base a little bit <clears throat> on uh, on your world sale business because. I, I know we have we have a lot of world sellers in the in the audience, and so uh, you're one of the few here in Florida that runs a very large world sale operation. How many deals again? Yeah, you told me you were doing every month. We're we're closing like twenty or thirty. We're picking up like forty, fifty contracts a month. Okay, wow, that's that's pretty good. So yeah, tell me a bit more about like uh, what your organization looks like today. Like what kind of marketing are you doing to to go after those? Uh, uh, those deals, and then uh, what markets are you are you currently in? So we're in the southeast. Um, in our CRM, we've had leads nationwide, and we're always following up with those same leads. So we'll still randomly get mm. deals in different states and different areas from our past marketing um, from people who have raised their hand that they're interested in selling. Right now, all we're focusing on is cold calling and PPC, okay. and so. We spend probably about 40K a month on PPC. That's uh, one of our best um, lead sources. Uh, but cold calling, since we own a, a call center, we have the ability to have you know a lot of callers call just for us. And so we get a lot of leads from cold calling. And our ratios with using Lamasu, Lamasu Media, is um, you know we give a higher a quality lead for a cold call than most other cold call companies. And so our closing ratio for our cold call is like one in 16, one in 18. So it's very oh, high compared to a lot of other good. Yeah, because, because it, I think the industry average is like one one on 72 or something like that for cold calling. It's, it's pretty high. Yeah, because a lot of times it just sends you back your own data. They're like verifying, hey, this is a person. They send it back to you. Like our cold callers are really getting a why, a price, getting a lot more information. Like you don't even need a lead manager or anybody else. Like so essentially we we do very well with our cold call leads. And so our team now in office here in Orlando is we got five cold call, we got five acquisition agents. Um my brother who runs my sales team and also is the head of the dispo acquisition and uh, the transaction coordinator. So we have two transaction coordinators here. And then we have some, we leverage uh, Columbia as well for our disposition, some more um, transaction co uh, coordinators as well. And then in office, we also have uh property manager, project manager, uh, assistants and, and whatnot as well. Why did you end up in Colombia? Because I mean, in the industry in general, we're more accustomed to, you know, Philippines and uh, Egypt, uh, or those kind of countries. So why Colombia? Uh, my, my business partner has uh, uh, ties to Colombia. His wife was Colombian. And um, so it made sense to go there for them. And then also it's on the same like time zone and also has, they have better English speaking and they don't have like blackouts of electricity and things that happen over there, sure. you know, and we were, we were creating an office and we were creating a culture rather than, you know, a lot of times those, those prop, those people have, you know, they're working from out of their home. You got to like provide internet and like backup internet for those folks with us, you know, everybody's in house and what that makes it a lot different than most of those call centers out there that are just randomly, you know, 
picking up people to add to their company that are working out of their homes in different areas, different cities, different countries. And there's no you don't have the company culture. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and, and the, and the drive and the, and the ability to rely on another, like how we talked about, like listening in on conversations and like really hearing what your, your neighbor's saying and, and feeding off of them and their energy and hearing that, that slick line that he said to the customer rather, you know, you'll never hear that when you're working at home solo in your own yeah. little box. And so, it's a lot uh, different vibe, and um, my business partner Scott, he has uh, built a uh, a big machine out there, and the culture out there is is unmatched. All right, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of Colombia. I was there like a few months ago, and actually, most of my team is in Colombia now. Oh, uh, nice. I used to have a lot of people in Philippines and in different country, but. Yeah, recently everybody is in Colombia between Catarina and Medellin, and uh, it's it's great. And what one of the things that I notice is like we're kind of born in the American culture, you know? Like they watch they watch the same movies we watch. They they yeah. understand. They have this ability to connect with with an homeowner here that um, someone from the Philippines don't really have. And yes. you say that it's like one hour time difference. Uh, and another big asset, especially for guys like us that work here in Florida. That most of the sellers here in South Florida, for example, are Spanish speakers. So yeah. you, when you call call, you end up on a lot of people actually speaking Spanish. So it's a good thing yeah. for them to be able to transition and serve customer in both uh, language. Yeah, it's a good advantage. Yeah. Absolutely. So just out of curiosity, we're talking about the instant rate that you have, the instant closing rate that you have on uh, on cold calling. Uh, what does it look like on your PPC? Uh, probably like one twelve, one fifteen, something like that. No, it's about one the same one fifteen, one sixteen. Okay, yeah, so cool. you are actually able to get the same quality of lead pretty much on cold calling than uh, you're on PPC. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's uh, really a huge accomplishment because yeah, usually in this industry, you know, it's it's really PPC is really the best quality of lead that you can get, but then the downside of that is that you need to make sure you have some very sharp closer on the phone because they yeah. are expensive, so you don't want like people to to mess up with uh, with those. Yeah, leads. you're getting a lot less leads with us with the cold calling. We're getting a lot more of those leads, so we have a lot more opportunities. So we're closing a lot more of those deals yeah. as well. So. Yeah, and, and it's it's always what I say to to my clients in my media company. I'm always like, you want to balance everything. Don't put all your money on like inbound. You want to have cold calling as well because you need to be able to like counterbalance. I think cold calling bring you more volume. Obviously, like most people are not going to be at a one or fifteen; they're going to be at one seventy or one sixty. But yeah. they still need this balance between high quality lead and volume, uh, because at the end of the day, it comes with a repetition. You know, you want closers to be on the phone all day long. You want them to have as many conversations as possible with sellers because that's how they're going to really sharpen their skills. So uh, I think it's a balance between everything. And then another thing is like, I don't know if you heard this term before of the Google slap, but every few years they switch the algorithm and all of a sudden your ads that were performing at the top crash and then it takes like a few weeks to put them back on. So uh, you want to make sure that you always <laughs> diversify your, your lead source. Yep, 100%. Yeah, we were doing a direct mail as well, but we turned that off just because That's we have expensive. the capability of the call center and it is expensive. But direct mail I do like, and I think it's uh, something that, uh, if you had the ability to, and you should definitely do cold, uh, direct mail as well. So do you, do you blast the same list on mail or do you just like reach out to the one, but you weren't able to skip trace or those kind of like very niche list? Yeah. So essentially that's, that's what we do now on, uh, if we can't reach them in any other way, or they were in our system and they said that they wanted to sell and now they're, we lost connect, contact with them then we can reach out to those folks through direct mail because, you know, a lot of these sellers are in like life situations. So like something's going on with them. So they might have to move or they lost their phone or they have their phone turned off, you know? So like you always want to stay, make sure that, you know, people are like, Oh, they ghosted me. Like they got stuff going on. They might have like lost their job, lost their mother, lost their phone. Like there's just things that happen. And so you got to just kind of stay on top of them. And if you can't, get a hold of them via the phone that you are using, then it's good to go back, skip trace them again, and mm -hmm. then mail them or mail their family and call, you know, call other sources 
to reach them. Absolutely. And it takes a lot of follow-up. And I, I assume that's why even though you don't do nationwide marketing anymore, you're still closing some deals because those people are in your CRM and they're on the loop and you follow up with them. And uh, I think that's where some people messed up. Like they call a few times a lead and then, oh, they disqualify it right away. Where sometimes it takes eight, nine, ten touches on the lead to close it. Maybe it's going to take a few years. So uh, we've been closing leads that have been in the pipeline for, for two years. Yeah, um, likewise. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of it's a lot of follow-up. It's a lot of staying on top of the lead. And I always say, unless, like, someone threaten to like sue you or something if you call them one more time you keep them in the pipeline they might not be ready today they might be ready in a year so 100 percent. unless yeah. they cry or die they, you keep calling them yeah, absolutely so uh i know that you have a coaching program as well can you can you tell us a bit more about uh about this program yeah it's uh called creative investor and so nice uh we just teach people how how to take like their wholesale business and start like just not be a wholesaler and just start taking down assets. And also, even if you're not ready to start taking down assets, if you still need to, you know, keep making money and, and building up a stockpile uh, of funds is allows you to know how to structure creative finance deals. So that way you can, you know, have more than one tool in your tool belt. If all you're doing is making offers, cash offers, cash offers, cash offers, and you're getting turned down again and again and again, you know, because you're only looking for that very few who are willing and able to take that offer. Now that you have the ability, if where you know the how to structure creative finance deals and offer where you can do seller financing or you can come up in price because you can take over their mortgage. Well, then now you have more tools in your tool belt. And now from those same leads that you're, you know, you're already paid for, you can get more deals. So you can get more conversions out of those same leads. And that's one another reason why we're one in, you know, 15, 116 is because we can get, you know, these sellers, uh, give them different options to create mm. win-win situations. So whether it's uh, subject to seller financing, innovation, you know, we're able to do these types of things, these transactions. And that's all we do to, is teach folks how to do that. So how to put more tools in your tool belt to do convert more leads and then give you the idea of like, hey, now take some of these leads for yourself, hold on to them so you can build wealth, you can build passive income. And then we also, you know, a lot of the people in the group are not just residential, they're doing multifamily, they're doing storage as well. And so, you know, it's being able to utilize creative financing in those asset classes as well. So that way you can build real wealth and scale up your business. Because when you're able to close more deals, then you can hire more people. You can reinvest in your marketing. And so the only way to scale is with people and marketing. And so you have to, in this market, be able to know creative financing very well so you can structure those deals and make uh, convert more sellers. Yeah, I, it, uh, I think it's a very smart way to say it. I think like most people try to push, you know, this lowball cash offer that sometimes just not going to be a fit let's let's be honest on like all the leads that you have coming through less than 10 percent are really going to be a perfect match for your cash offer so that's where you need to come up with all those creative financing and innovation i think innovation is huge right now because i hear a lot like signs a lot of cash buyers pull back from the market being able to go straight to retail is probably the best uh, the best uh, option and i know that a lot of investors right now are actually putting in their contract all the language to be able to put it to the MLS because that's that's probably one of the best way to to dispose right now. So that's definitely skills that people should acquire. So uh we will link all the information about your your coaching program in the in the description below. Listen man, it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. I think we we provided a lot of value to the audience. Uh we probably opened their mind on the possibilities, you know, outside of residential between self-storage, mobile home, like and uh and creative financing. Do you have any any like parting words that you want to leave to the audience with? Like any any like key advice? And then where can people find you? They can find me at Alex at uh at alex.theinvestor.kisada. And that's the same from Instagram to YouTube, TikTok and all and everything else pretty much. Uh, final words is like, it is mindset. I think everything is mindset first. Um, a lot of times, if you don't have the mindset going into it, because you're going to strike out more 
then you get told yes. You're going to be told no a lot more. You're going to, you know, get cursed out. You're going to lose. You're going to get hung up on. And I think everybody kind of gives up and they think success should come easy. But it's really like knowing that it is going to come, but you have to put in the effort and the massive effort. And there's so many people who I talk to at a lot of local events. The most things I hear from people is like, I can't get my first deal. But when you actually talk to them about what actions they're taking, it's very minimal. And they're like, oh, I'm door knocking like every Saturday for three hours. I'm cold calling, you know, three days a week for two hours a day. It's like that is no activity. You have to take massive action. And so if you have a, a great mindset of like, if I take this massive action, I will get results because you see it everywhere. You see people having success. You see it on Instagram the most, but there's people everywhere who are winning and they're winning because they're, they have a great mindset. And one is because they're around other people, you know, having these types of conversations, seeing people who, who have done it and who have success. So you got to get yourself in the right rooms, have the right mindset and then take massive action. And so when you do those types, those three things, it allows you to be very successful. And um, yeah, that's it. I love that. I love that. And taking massive action, by the way, is one of my company core values. So I totally connect with that. And it's true. Like I, I realize many times that people are, are just not doing enough, like not cold calling enough, not talking to enough people. Uh, so I think that's that's a key thing. Like you once a week is not enough. You need to do that every day for several hours and it might take some months, but then once you start getting those first deal, it creates some kind of momentum. So if you have the right mindset and you take the right steps, uh, you're going to get there. I think, I think the, the last thing is probably, um, the power of networking, you know, and those mastermind. I think you, you said it first, you know, uh, it's because you were in the right room that you've been able to grow this business. Uh, yeah. so find the right mentors, the right coaches, go to mastermind. All this kind of thing is, uh, is what is going to create this momentum for you. 100%. All right. Well, man, thank you so much once again for being on the show today. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to see what, uh, what you're going to do in the future. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. And hard and you aiming for the seven figures. Hear from the experts who know how to deliver. Success stories, plenty advice. Time for you to rise. REI tribe, yeah. Real estate agents to investors. All my entrepreneurs, time for you to check this. Johan Durant, he's getting it started, man. From running businesses to digital marketing. Hey, REI, REI tribe. REI, REI tribe. Let's go.